Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. My guest in this episode is Mael Salmon from France. Mael is a Research Software Engineer and Associate Editor at RLPNSI. But before we start, I'd just like to say a few words. It's been quite a year this 2020. Our lives have been turned upside down, and many of us are struggling. Maybe you do too. It'll probably take some time before we'll be able to go back to some level of normality, whatever normality there will be. In all of this uncertainty, one thing is sure, we're badly in need of a holiday after all of this. And I certainly am. And so this will be my last episode before the season and New Year's holiday. I will return in January with, I hope, interesting and exciting interviews. For instance, my interview with Olivia Guest in mid-January and plenty more. In the meantime, stay safe, look after yourself and your loved ones. And if you do have some time off as we move into 2021, try to relax and recharge your batteries. You will need them for next year. Finally, I'd like to thank Vanessa for giving me the opportunity to join this podcast. Vanessa, you created this podcast in 2019 and have been publishing episodes with interesting people regularly ever since. I believe it's a great way to build and strengthen our community, so thank you for doing this. And now, I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Mael. Hello, Mael, and welcome to the show. Mel, you worked on a variety of different research projects in different places, and could you give us an overview of your background? Yeah, so I, I started out studying biology and ecology at university, and I think my, my idea when I started um, studying biology was that I would work in a lab, but then I didn't enjoy lab work at school, and I realized I liked working on computers with computers, so that's what I, 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 I chose to do. So I, I then did a PhD in statistics, but applied to public health. So during my PhD, uh, what I worked with was surveillance data of infectious diseases. So uh, in many countries, when you get sick with, say, salmonellosis, so there is this case report that is sent to public health institutions. So uh, in these public health institutions, you can then aggregate data from many cases and look at patterns. Like, for instance, maybe you will see that an outbreak might be starting. So my PhD was dealing with um, statistical methods for you know, time series of ana uh, analysis of such data. And also, uh, because I worked at the public health institution, I was able to see the application of such methods. That was quite exciting and motivating. After that, I switched to non-infectious disease epidemiology. So I became a data manager and statistician for a uh, research uh, project about the link between air, air pollution and health in a part of India. And after that, I, I actually left epidemiologists. I worked with R and documenting R packages and writing blog posts about R in particular um, at R OpenSci, which is an organization that supports open and reproducible science with R. Well, that's quite an impressive list of projects you have there, Mael. When I went through the list that you mentioned on your website, there's one in particular that I find quite interesting called CHAI, which stands for, I believe, Cardiovascular Health Effects in India. Could you tell us what this project is about and what your role was in it? 
China means cardiovascular health effect of air pollution in Telangana, India. So it was a big uh, epidemiology project where uh, many different data sets were collected uh, at the environmental level, like air pollution monitors, and at the personal level, so having uh, study participants fill out questionnaires and wear mobile devices. And my role in this was data manager and statistician, so I had never been a data manager before that. So, so I spend a lot of time cleaning data and documenting data preparing it for analysis. You mentioned pollution. So it, was it a project that tried to connect pollution with heart disease? Uh, yes, yeah, so and the pollution was particulate, ma particulate matter pollution. So for instance, one of the monitors that participants wore was a monitor that uh, measures the uh, level of exposure to PM 2.5. Uh-huh which is one of the particular matters as a small, the smaller ones that you can get exposed to. You also mentioned our OpenSci software peer review, and I recently talked to Anna Crostoli about her work. What is your role in OpenSci? Our OpenSci software peer review, so I'm a volunteer editor, and that's one of the first things I started to do for uh, our OpenSci. So Anna mentioned she started out by reviewing a package. So I started out by submitting a package uh, a few years ago, and then I got more and more involved and, and became an editor like Anna is now. Let me back up a little bit. So at our website software review, we have a, a system for reviewing packages so that our website sort of packages includes packages that are either developed by staff, so these ones are not necessarily peer-reviewed, but mm -hmm. and they also include packages by community members, and this one are peer-reviewed so by two external people that have a look at their software and how it works. And editors, we are here to sort of shepherd the process. So for when a submission comes in, we have a look and see whether it's uh, in scope because we mm -hmm. don't review any software and we uh, look for reviewers and make sure that the process uh, goes forward as expected. What do you enjoy about working as an R OpenSci editor? So I think I enjoy the variety of packages and of uh, experience we, we get we get to see like people working on things that we we otherwise uh, wouldn't do and I really enjoy seeing the results of the process so hmm. you know, seeing these interactions between reviewers and authors so when they're all happy uh, to see progress and to learn things I think that's very gratifying. You've done quite a lot of work in R, and I would like to actually talk a little bit about that. R has been quite successful, and it's widely used in data science and analysis. But in the meantime, um, there are a number of other and newer tools out there. Should we still be learning and working in R? And if so, why? Yeah, so I think if uh, someone already knows R and it works well for them, then there is no big reason for them to switch because mm -hmm. R will support their current needs. And I think that yes, R will still be around for a while. So it, we're not like sending people to um, you know, a role with no, with no uh, issue. So we, we, we are not making people lose their time if we teach them R, even nowadays when there are other tools for doing da data science. What kind of tools would you use instead of R? I mean, if you were to say, I would like to move away from R, what kind of alternative tools would you recommend? Why would you do that then? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> indeed, I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I might learn Python in, in that case. But if I, you know, if I keep using R and I want, for instance, faster code, then I would look into learning C and C++ mm -hmm. that interface quite well with R. When I say that R is used in different areas of science. Could you highlight 
some science fields and some research areas where R is most popular or where it's most used in? Yes, you know, I studied ecology and biology, mm-hmm. and that's why I, I learned R, because that was the language that was taught for these fields. And of course, I have a biased view, but I think R was quite popular for that, for, you know, biology, bioinformatics, and for ecological analysis too. And because R is historically as well a language for statistics, What's really great is that you will, have, you will have implementation of most statistical methods and there are also many ma- machine learning tools that, that you can use mm. from R. So I think that, that would be, that, that's quite a strength of R. I confess that I haven't worked in R before, to be honest, and with uh, so many scientists now working in R, I probably should start learning in it. What would you suggest I do to get started with R? Yeah, so because you already program in all the languages, so depending on the languages you use now, I think I would put the name of that uh, language and learning R, you know, learning R as a Python user or learning R as whatever mm-hmm. user. I think that would be like, you know, maybe you will find uh, blog posts about people saying, you know, the things they found weird about R that people will program at all yet might not find weird, like for instance, things that I don't find weird because I didn't know other languages before I came to R. Then generally, there are a lot of free resources for learning R. And for instance, Mini Darshu um, created a website called Learn R for Free, which listed many resources you can use to learn R. Of course, you might be overwhelmed because there are many of them, so you can filter the resources according to various criteria. And if I had to say one thing, then I would mention the book R for Data Science by Hadley Wickham and Garrett Brolemont. Probably there is a free version online, so maybe you could start by reading that. And then depending on your needs, you would find resources. Is there a particular project that you're working on at the moment uh, in R? I mean, apart from being an R OpenSci editor, that you could highlight and talk about a little bit? This year and last year, I spent quite a lot of time working on some advocacy for R Hub. R Hub is a project funded by Gabor Shadi um, that provides uh, tools for our package developers for like testing their mm-hmm. package on platforms, you know, on operating systems that they don't have uh, locally. And what I did was writing a documentation and many blog posts about our hub and about our package development in general, some niche topics that you know, some questions that people might have when they create our packages. And that has been really interesting to work on, you know, finding some questions that people might have and finding some mm. resources that, that might help. There are a large number of packages and tools available for R, of course. And uh, the question is, how do you actually find your way through it? And how do you keep up with that? And as a new starter in particular? Yeah, so that's uh, the issue. And the first thing I hope, like as a, as a newcomer, that you can find some uh, R friends. So if you start learning R because someone tells you that you should, then this person should be responsible for helping you find your way. And I think that's the same with all the languages. You know, you have to know how to assess new tools. So if you see a cool new R package for doing a task, it's important you know how to see whether it's mature, you know, maybe where, where is it distributed. If you look at the source code, is there some acti- recent activity? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, do you only see bad reports panning on a no, no response? So these kind of things might help choosing a, a package. Let's just step back a little bit because you mentioned the maturity of our packages. Mm-hmm. How can you assess how mature an R package is? 
Does it come with testing? Uh, does it come with some kind of evaluation? How can somebody who looks at a new R package actually see that it's, it looks exciting. It looks like it's uh, something that I want to use in my project. How can I assess uh, how good yeah, it is? It's an interesting question and a hard run because once you start developing packages yourself, you might find it not easy, but easier to assess. So in R, mm. one thing that people often use as a proxy with Webers packages is available on CRAN, which is a comprehensive, I think it stands for, uh, sorry, comprehensive R archive net network. And it, uh-huh. that's where many people install packages from. In bioinformatics, there is another way to install packages from Bioconductor. And in that case, you're really sure that they have been reviewed Whereas for CRAN is just mostly some technical criteria about your package yeah. as to, to respect. So that might help. And then, you know, if you hear many people using a package, that means the package is a large user base. So that might help you see that it's trustworthy mm-hmm. or that at least, you know, you would have other people to ask questions to. Well, we mentioned testing or you mentioned testing just, mm-hmm. uh, just now. In open source software, sometimes, not always, but sometimes um, software packages come with unit tests or some kind mm-hmm. of testing. In your capacity as an editor of uh, and peer reviewer of our packages is that something you look out for that you know a new package is being submitted does it come with any tests do you run these tests is that something oh, yeah, that you look out for definitely we we do that we even have a, a lower limit for the percentage of lines of code that have to be covered by unit tests that are inside we definitely uh, like require testing of packages and we run test of course and what we also require is that packages have some sort of continuous integration service so that every uh-huh. change of the package has to be tested on and we have criteria for when you need to do that on different platforms so if your package has compiled code you definitely shouldn't only be testing it on your mac you mentioned unit testing so you do some unit testing on uh, these packages or you check the unit testing what kind of code coverage are you looking for when you look at packages yeah so i think it was something like 80 80 percent but i I, mm. I would need to check in our dev guide you know when we write all our guidance so even i <laughs> as an editor and i'm actually the maintainer of the dev guide so even i need to go and read read, read up uh, these things that's why it's good we have written them down i think mm. 80 80 percent so the R community is a very wi- vibrant one, and you volunteer for groups such as R Ladies and R Weekly. Uh, let's start with R Ladies. Uh, can you tell me more about what the group is and why you volunteer for it? Yes, yeah, so R Ladies is an, an, an organization uh, aimed at increasing gender diversity in the R community. So the name uh, might be a little bit misleading because it's not only women, but any any gender minority because currently uh, in the R community as in many other technical communities so there is a lack of such diversity very huge proportion of cis men all being key roles in the community developing packages etc so what ID does is encouraging uh, and supporting the participation of women and gender minorities in the R community mostly by holding local meetups. So this year, <laughs> most of these meetups are online, yeah. which is, of course, um, sad because of the situation that created this, but also an opportunity for people to join from various places if, a, if mm. an event is interesting to them. 
I find that quite interesting. So where about would people find our ladies in the world? I mean, apart from the fact that we're now meeting online only, I guess here in the UK, in France, where you live, uh, are there any other countries where our ladies? Oh, yeah, like many, many, many countries. Yeah, mm -hmm. so many countries and continents, <clears throat> which is good because it means in different time zones. Now that we're speaking about online events only. <laughs> So there are chapters, you know, in India, in Australia, in Latin America, some chapters like the same time zone as Europe in, in, in Africa. So we really have chapters all over the world. And how would people get in touch with that? Yeah, so uh, women of minorities uh, can, can go to our website, aledis.org, how to find our local chapters and on other events. And one very cool thing that we have is a community Slack, so, you know, some sort of private discussion forum for ladies all over the world and very often chapter organizer will share about about up, upcoming events and we also have a twitter account so my role is to use twitter accounts ladies global mm. and there when i see events i try to retweet them what do you think the impact is of a group like our ladies have you seen more women joining have you seen uh, the community of women and uh, other genders growing My body will bias because you know, like being mm. an R and thinking about whether R is important. But I think even that is helpful. Like you, you you're no longer isolated uh, as an R lady because you meet other people. When, when we used to have uh, in-person conferences, one thing that often happened was a group picture of R ladies, and that was interesting to see. You know, the group getting bigger year after year at conferences. Because in uh, other areas of IT, the proportion of women and uh, different genders and different race and religious, etc., is uh, a very different one. It seems like in R, the balance is better. And is there something that other tech communities could learn from the R community and initiatives like R Ladies? Yes, yeah, so yeah. I think it's interesting that we have our ladies, we also have Forward, which is the task force of the R Foundation uh, related to women and other minorities. There mm. is a new organization, Minorities in R. And so this might be examples, but I think, uh, but the R community still has work to do on diversity and maybe the most important thing to learn from and to try to uh, imitate would be, you know, like as a community, finding where you still need to, to, to make progress because I, I don't think we are, Otherwise, we could just, you know, stop having our latest because it wouldn't be needed or there wouldn't be minorities in R because there would no longer be racism in our community. And I think that's not the case just yet. So I think we all just need to keep learning and trying to be better depending on uh, who we are, so be better allies. I would like to move to the other volunteering group that you work in, which is R Weekly. Could you tell us more about that? What do you do there? What your role yeah. is there? So our weekly uh, is aiming our users and developers follow the news of the R community, which is a very important topic, no matter you know what uh, sort of things you do with, with R, because there are, are always new things coming in and you, you want to know about them, but you maybe <laughs> or probably don't want to spend your life you know, scrolling on Twitter. Our weekly is a created newsletter of blog posts and package releases and events Uh, that uh, uh, happen in our community. So it's called Our Weekly because it comes um, every Monday. So it was funded by One Thanking, and now we are, there are several of us team members. 
each of us our weekly editors is that once every every few weeks we are in charge of collating links from various places so we subscribe to RSS feeds of blogs that are relevant to R and we receive submissions you know one-off submission from people that just did a cool workshop about R functions so maybe they submit the link to the materials and we include such things so that's the role of the editor and we select 10 links from these links to have other editors vote on to choose highlights. So as a, a weekly subscriber, you get a very complete collection of news, but you also get, you know, maybe two or three at the top that we thought were really important. So it means you don't need to spend as much time as you would trying to read all these sources yourself. Mm. Like if to follow news on, well, again, Twitter only, on, on your GitHub timeline. But of course, it, it only works if we have many, many submissions. What I want to realize is if you're listening to this and you, are an, uh, you have developed some form of our content, a blog post, a tutorial, so go to ourweekly.org and, and please submit it to us so we might include it. What do you think the future of our could look like? Because we talked earlier on in the podcast, we talked about other tools and newer tools available. How do you see the future of R evolving? So I don't think R is uh, going away. The nice things we have in R, such as the R Markdown ecosystem for developing content, you know, writing together your text and code snippets that generate figures and this kind of things. Really, I don't know, or maybe I'm just being blindsided <laughs> by uh, working with R, but I don't think R is going away and R itself is still being very actively developed by our core and there are new packages and tools being developed. So I, I think we can be excited for new things, but not R is appearing. So you moved into the space of research software engineering. Would you actually identify yourself as a research software engineer? Yes, that's my title for the work uh, I do uh, at our open site and I definitely identify with the idea to provide support to people doing science rather than, than doing science myself. And I really much enjoy the technical aspects more than I ever enjoyed writing papers, for instance. Well, the reason I'm asking is because in some countries like the UK, and but also in other countries, there are in fact roles, jobs out there that are called RSE and they are paid and the job description says they're RSEs. In some countries that actually isn't the case. What's the situation where you are, Mael? Yeah, so I think it's, it's hard for me because I, I, I don't uh, directly work for French uh, institutions. Mm. So that, that, that makes it hard for me to, to really assess. But in France, you have some job titles in academia that have engineer in their name. So research engineer. Oh, what was the other one? So another one with research. And one of the people I look up to in the R committee, so Liz Berger, she is a research engineer um, mm. and, and what she does, so at least what she puts on outputs online from what she does, I think, looks like what uh, I would imagine the RSC doing, you know, supporting people with teaching and writing code. I think that would be our RSCs. But really, my perspective is really biased by not working uh, for a French institution. What is your role at the moment, if I may ask? We have, we should, we, perhaps we should have started with that. Yeah, so I have different projects, but one of them is uh, working for uh, our open site. So at our open site, so right now at the moment, uh, we are working on, the re on a redesign of the website. So I'm not using Alphabet, I'm writing new templates for 
our website, you know, for making uh, oh, okay. and the website is quite important, you know, helping people find information um, about our activities and uh, helping them find our resources. And what I, I have also written blog posts and right now I've started another project with, uh, related to uh, an online book. So the related to HTTP testing. So we mentioned unit testing. So mm -hmm. one thing that might make uh, unit testing more trending is when your tool is working with HTTP resources. But there are tools in our packages helping with uh, HTTP testing and the project is about uh, documenting these tools and explaining the concept of how you would, for instance, store HTTP responses. So you don't need to actually make a real HTTP request every time you run your test. Packages are by open science. There are also packages developed by other people to help with HTTP testing. Is that kind of mocking HTTP requests? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, so that's, you know, mocking and that is one of the keywords that need to be explained correctly in, the, in, the, in this. Ah, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now and I usually finish with two questions and one which is at the end of your career, far ahead into the future, what do you hope you would have achieved by then? Yes, yeah, so that's a difficult question, but mm. based on what I do, I really hope I won't have contributed to documentation depth and that on the contrary, I will have helped making it smaller. So either that, so both by having written documentation myself and by having other people, by having helped other people write uh, documentations, you know, maybe with tools that help them and by having advocated for better documentation. And finally, what do you like to do when you're not working, Mel? <laughs> so I have two young kids. So most of my free time is spent with them and also doing the maintenance work that having small kids entails. Uh, right. Okay. Well, that certainly keeps you very busy. Well, thank you so much, Mel, for your time today. And I wish you all the best for the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.